This message was recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 25. Psalms chapter 25. My name is Josh Varnado. I'm a pastoral resident here at Cornerstone. And this morning I have the privilege of preaching from God's Word. Psalm 25. Bill Moore and Dory Tritton were married on April 22nd, 1944. Ten days later, Bill was shipped out to fight in Europe as the Allied forces began to close in on Germany. Bill was a pilot, and he was assigned to the 505th Fighter Squadron of the 339th Fighter Group. Writing to his wife that following August, Bill Bill said, the, the war looks like it might end over here fairly soon, and that would be swell. However, on his fifth mission, Bill was shot down and ended up in a tree on a random farm in Germany, and German farmers, understandably in disbelief to see an enemy pilot dangling from a tree on their property, took him captive and delivered him to the German army. And over the following months, Bill would write letters to his new bride. The challenging part was he wasn't allowed to receive any letters, so communication was one-sided, but that did not deter him. Dory would receive letters from Bill, letters like the one he wrote in February of 1945. He wrote, I really miss you and love you terribly. Lately, I had lots of dreams about you, all good ones. Bill was freed in April of 1945. After nine months, he would finally be on his way back to his new wife. He, he wrote Dory after being freed, Dearest, gosh, am I ever a happy fellow tonight. I'm so happy that I'm just bubbling over with joy. Remind me to give you an extra grand hug and kiss. In fact, two extra special ones. Back home during those nine months, Dory kept every letter that Bill sent in a big scrapbook as she waited to see her husband again. And imagine what that would have been like, unable to communicate back, not knowing what the future held. Dory waited and waited for Bill to return. Thousands of women like Dory waited for their husbands to return from overseas. Waiting characterized their lives. Men like Bill anticipated being back with their loved ones, anxious for the war to end. And as Christians this morning, waiting characterizes our lives. You ever thought about that? Paul writes in, in Titus 2, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Everything that we do as Christians is done in light of the return of Christ. Everything we do is done waiting for when our faith becomes sight. I heard one pastor recently define what waiting actually is. He says, waiting on God is characterized 
by confident and eager expectation that God will do what he has promised. Waiting on God is characterized by confident and eager expectation that God will do what he has promised. We're waiting for Christ to return. He has promised that he will, and we look forward to that day. We're expecting it. But while waiting for Christ to return is the most important and defining thing that we wait for, everyone in this room can attest the reality that, that we wait for other things too. Remember last week we were reminded that the Lord reigns over all and that he's providentially using our trials for our good. And maybe you believe that. You hear that and you think, yes, amen, the Lord is sovereign. He's using my trials. But you're still waiting. You're waiting for relief or deliverance. You're waiting for pain to go away. Maybe this morning you're waiting on the Lord for a clear medical screen or reconciliation in a relationship, a new job, salvation for an unsaved friend or relative victory over a sin that you just can't seem to get over. Maybe you're waiting for a close friend. You want a close friend or, or even a spouse you're waiting to see fruit in the lives of your children or restoration in your marriage. Maybe you're waiting on the Lord just to give you joy. You're in a dry season, and God's word doesn't seem to affect you like it did. And you're waiting. The, the list goes on. It's part of living in a fallen world. It's part of living by faith. One day, we won't have to wait because we'll be with our Savior. But until that day, we do. We're called to wait on him, to trust him for every aspect of our lives, relying on him for strength, for hope, and peace. So if waiting is such a big part of the Christian life, if it's such a defining thing that we do, then I think we need to consider, how do we wait well? How do we honor the Lord in our waiting? And this week, we're going to again look to the Psalms for counsel. We're going to find counsel. We're going to find wisdom in how to wait for the Lord. David's got a lot going on when he writes Psalm 25. I feel like David always has a lot going on. He's got a lot going on when he writes Psalm 25. He's frightened. He's intimidated by those opposed to him. He needs direction from God. He's lonely. And he's painfully aware of his own internal battle against sin. So what does he do? He waits on the Lord. He's in the center of this tornado of problems and questions, but he waits on the Lord. And we can learn from David's waiting. Whatever you're waiting on the Lord to do, big or small, this psalm applies to you. It has relevance for your life and for my life. My prayer is that the Lord, through his holy word would encourage us to continue in our waiting, that we would wait biblically and faithfully. So the main point this morning is simply this, continue to wait on the Lord and eagerly anticipate that he will do 
what he has promised. Continue to wait on the Lord and eagerly anticipate that he will do what he has promised. So how do we do that? Let's examine what David does. I think the Lord is instructing us through this psalm, and I want to draw out three things that David does that we can apply to our own lives. First of all, David waits solely on God. Look at verses one through two. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. There's only one place that David goes to in the midst of his trouble. There's only one object of his trust, only one upon whom he waits, and that's God. And when he says it's to the Lord that he lifts up his soul, he's saying it's to the Lord that he directs his desires. He sets his heart on, that he longs for, that he trusts. He's taken all the confusion, all the loneliness, all the guilt, all the fear, and the first thing that he does is he commits himself to the Lord. He's holding nothing back from God. Everything is laid out on the table, and he confesses in verse 2, in you I trust. He doesn't want to go anywhere else. He doesn't want to wait on anyone else. He's waiting on God. And you can, you can kind of sense the, the vulnerability that David feels. That's why he asked God in verse 2, let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies that surround me exalt over me. Don't let my trust in you be futile. David's committing his whole life to his creator. And remember, David's the king of Israel. It's not like the guy lacks resources. He can do whatever he wants, but he doesn't trust in his resources or his abilities or his status. He waits on God alone. This is difficult for us to do. And I think we have to ask, do we wait on the Lord this exclusively and this dependently? A couple weeks ago, my wife Mel and I got a little golden retriever puppy, and uh, her life is pretty simple. She, uh, she eats, she sleeps, she chews on anything she can find, and uh, she goes to the bathroom, hopefully outside. And as I was studying this psalm, I, I thought about it. She's kind of front of mind. We're trying to train her, so she's a little front of mind thought about her, and I just thought about how her well-being it really is tied to Mel and I's ability to take care of her. If one day we decided we didn't want to feed her, she wouldn't get fed. There's nothing she could do about it. If she ran off, I don't think she would fare that well. And I wish she showed a little bit more gratitude. We're all she's got. There's no plan B for our puppy. And I just think in a very small small way, this kind of illustrates David's posture before God. David's confessing, there's nowhere else I can go. I don't have a plan B. I'm waiting on you. So don't let me be put to shame. Don't let my my hope in you be shown to be foolish or false. But in verse 3, he speaks of a promise that's true for him and is true for us this morning. He says, indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. Waiting exclusively on God, it sounds intimidating, but your trust in him will never be shown to be foolish. 
And I'm sure there's folks in this room who feel like you're being put to shame. You've been waiting, and there's no apparent resolution. It feels like God's forgotten you. And I just want to encourage you, this is God's word. This isn't Josh just saying, you know, trust in the Lord, you're going to be fine. This is God revealing himself to us. He's telling us. He's telling you. He's telling me. No one who waits on me will be put to shame. These are God's words. This is a promise from God himself. So lift up your soul to your God. Trust him. The second thing that we learned from David is he seeks guidance from God. He waits solely on God, and then second, he seeks guidance from God. Let's start reading in verse 4. He says, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. And one thing that we learn from David here that's, that's really important for us to understand is he doesn't wait for God passively. He's not just kind of sitting back waiting for God to do something. Waiting on the Lord, it, it's not like ordering something at a restaurant, right? It, you know, the server comes to you, you tell him or her what you want, then you sit back and relax, and then you get frustrated if it's late or not what you expected it to be. I think we can think waiting is like that. It's passive. Our thinking is corrected in this psalm. In the midst of his waiting, David pursues God, actively pursues God for guidance. And note here, he's not primarily asking for circumstantial direction. And personally, I, I can jump really quickly to this. Lord, just give me the answer. I'm sick, I'm, I'm sick of waiting. Sick of waiting for clarity. I want to know what I'm supposed to do. Where should I go? Just give it to me straight. I remember thinking this a lot when I was in college. Lord, tell me what career I should pursue. Tell me who I should marry. Tell me where I should move. And those aren't bad questions. Those aren't bad things to ask. But when all I cared about was getting an answer, I missed, I missed the point. Remember, David's struggling. He's afraid. He's confused. He needs direction, but his primary concern is knowing the Lord's ways and being taught his paths. He knows the remedy for his situation is not ultimately answers and practical direction. It's guidance and godliness. It's obedience. Waiting on the Lord, it, it helps us grow. And I don't think we, or at least me, always really connect the dots between waiting and faithful obedience. Does our holiness matter when it comes to waiting, when it comes to enduring difficult circumstances? John Calvin he just simply writes, he says this, to pretend to wait on God without holiness of life is righteous, is religious hypocrisy. That's convicting. 
And Jesus actually illustrates this reality in Luke 6 when he talks about a man who builds his foundation on God's word. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I'll show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And the stream broke against it immediately. It fell. And the ruin of that house was great. Jesus, he's, he's drawn a connection between obedience and how we handle trials. Submission to God's word, faithful obedience, fighting to love God with all of your heart, loving other people, according to Jesus, that's going to bear good fruit in your life. Building your life on the foundation of his word will enable you to faithfully endure trial and give you patience in your waiting. I don't naturally think that way. I don't naturally think that way, but what happens is the more that we conform our lives to God's word, our hearts and desires are oriented around God and his purposes. And we can pray like Jesus taught us to pray in the Sermon on the Mount, your kingdom come, your will be done. Holiness is vital when it comes to waiting, regardless of what we're waiting for. It helps us wait with faith. It helps us wait patiently. Pursuing holiness is an expression of trust. It's acknowledging that God knows best, that he knows what's best for our lives. You see that makes a difference when we're waiting? So what's the counsel that we receive from this psalm when it comes to waiting. So far, if you're here this morning and you're waiting on something, you've been praying for something, what's the counsel that we've received from this verse? Well, before anything else, even more important than getting what you're waiting for, foster a love for God's word. Flee ungodliness. Pursue righteousness. Fight to love what he loves. Be a student of the paths of God. Build your life like David on the foundation of God's word. But David doesn't end here. It's important to note that David doesn't just obey God. He doesn't want to just obey God. He, he wants to learn more. He wants to learn more about God and who it is that he's waiting on. Look at verse five. He says, lead me in your truth and teach me for you are the God of my salvation. For you, I wait all the day long. Calvin comments, he says, David asks that the promises of God may be deeply impressed and engraven on his heart. For as long as this thought prevails in our minds that God takes care of us, it is the best and most powerful means for resisting temptations. David he wants to be led in God's truth. He wants God's truth to be the dominating influence in his life. And what's God's truth? It's his promises. 
It's the promises that David looked forward to. And it's what we've seen through the eyes of faith. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the way, the truth, and the life, who came to die for sinners and then rose again, defeating death forever, guaranteeing our future destination with God. That's the truth of God. He's the God of our salvation, and it's for him that we wait. We wait for the good shepherd who has promised that no one can snatch us out of his hand, John 10. We wait for the one who will never leave us nor forsake us, Hebrews 13. We wait for the one who right now is seated at the right hand of God and will return in glory, Colossians 3. We wait for that day when he will wipe every tear from our eyes, Revelation 21. We wait as those who have seen God's promises in the Old Testament fulfilled. And we anticipate his promises to return. So you and I, we can say, lead me in your truth and teach me. We can pray that way. I mean, if David only knew, <laughs> he wouldn't better imagine. It, we can pray in that way, knowing so much more than David did, having seen so much more than David did. You see, David's not primarily concerned with black and white answers to his problems. Yes, he wants resolution. <laughs> yes, he wants relief. But his primary desire is that he knows God, that he obeys him, and that he loves his promises. That's his priority. And what's interesting is that as he prays to be led in God's ways, and taught God's truth, he becomes more and more aware of his own sin. Look at verses six and seven. He says, remember your mercy, O Lord, your steadfast love, your covenant love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions for the sake of your steadfast love. Remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Later in verse 11, he says, pardon my guilt for it is great. As we conform ourselves to and receive instruction from God's word, the less and less impressed we are with ourselves and the less we think we know how our life should go. David knows there's, there's nothing good in him that qualifies him to be led or taught by God. In fact, he knows, and if you're a Christian here this morning, you know that what we deserve is wrath, not tender leading or instruction. But David, he doesn't wallow in condemnation, and neither should we. Because the Lord does not see us according to our sins. We read it this morning, Psalm 103. <laughs> He's remo removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. And we can, we can rejoice with David when he writes in verse 8, Psalm 25, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners 
in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. He instructs sinners in the way. He's working all things for good for sinners. He's making redeemed sinners more and more like Christ. This is good news. Spurgeon writes, he says, the Lord our God and his compassion will bring sinners into the way of holiness and conform them to his own image. Thus the goodness of our God leads us to expect the reclaiming of sinful men. That's good news. Let those who desire to be delivered from sin take comfort from this. God himself will condescend to be the teacher of sinners. What a ragged school is this for God to teach in. God's teaching is practical. He teaches sinners not only the doctrine, but the way. He loves to make us know his ways. He loves to teach sinners his truth. He loves to answer humble prayers like the prayers that David prayed. God hasn't left you in your waiting. He hasn't checked out. Like we were reminded last week, he's doing a million things behind the scenes, all for your good and his glory. He's guiding you. He's leading you. He's making you more like Christ. And if you're in a, a, a dry season spiritually, if you're struggling to love God, to love his word, you're struggling to pray, it's difficult. I think this is a promise you really can hold on to. It might feel like he's left you or he's not interested in you. But according to this psalm, that's just not true. He's invested in conforming you to the image of Christ. He will answer your prayers for guidance, not because of your performance, but because of his steadfast love and goodness. So keep waiting on him. If we keep reading, we see that the person who humbles themselves under the care of God prospers even if their situation remains the same. David writes these next couple of verses. He's in the same situation, but he says, verse 12, who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being. His offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. He makes known to them his covenant. And David says, my eyes are ever towards the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. So what's the counsel? Wait with your eyes set on the Lord. Set on his ways. Set on his promises. He will pluck your feet out of the net. He will keep you safe. What does this mean for tomorrow morning? Another day of waiting? Make David's request your own. Ask God that he would teach you his ways, that he would lead you in his truth, and then open God's word.
Open it by faith. Pursue him. Seek God's truth. He loves to instruct sinners in the way. He loves to do it. And he's promised that he will. And if you want to see examples of this psalm lived out, just look around. There's examples of this all over the place. This is where the church is such a gift. This room is filled with people who are waiting on the Lord to do significant things and are delighting themselves in the Lord as they wait. So just look around. You need an example. They're here. We can, we can counsel one another with this psalm and the wisdom that we find in it. If you have a friend who comes to you who's weary of waiting, you don't have to have the answers. You don't have to have the circumstantial answers. But you can remind them of the promises of God. You can remind them that they never will be put to shame. You can remind them of God's truth, and you can anticipate the Lord's faithfulness together. Finally, David prays honestly to God. So we continue through Psalm 25. We see that David doesn't just pretend like he's not in a trial. He doesn't act like everything's okay. His priority is knowing God, but that doesn't mean he's putting on an act before God or anyone else. So after asking for guidance and righteousness and informed by God's promises, he begins to pray specific prayers to the Lord for his circumstances. Listen how honest his prayer is. Look at verse 16. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble. Forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. I'm so thankful this is in the Bible. I'm so thankful this is in this psalm because waiting can be hard. It can be painful. And it's okay to call waiting a trial. We're invited to come to the Lord as we are with all of our burdens and receive grace. You believe you can do this with God? Do you really think that you can pray specific prayers about your specific situation to God? Well, these verses and, and other places in the Bible tell us that we indeed can. Looking at the psalm, honest prayer is a massive part of patiently waiting on God. It's part of obeying God. We're, we're commanded to pray in 1 Thessalonians 5, pray without ceasing. It's part of walking in the Lord's ways. And I want to grow in, in, in pouring out my heart before the Lord because I don't naturally pray these kinds of prayers. And I think it's because it takes humility to do that. And I'm not naturally humble. 
David's applying verses one and two, because what we see in these verses is a man who's completely reliant on God, a man who is fighting for faith as he waits on the Lord, a man who knows his own tendencies to doubt and to go other places for security and rest. So he's laying it all out. He's waiting on God, but again, he's not doing it passively. He's asking for help. He verbalizes his loneliness and afflictions. His troubles seem insurmountable, and he's aware of his guilt. His enemies are closing in. He's vulnerable, and he knows it. So he prays, guard me. Protect me. Deliver me. I'm lonely and afflicted. The Lord loves when his people cry to him. He loves to hear their voice. He welcomes it. Remember Psalm 34? This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and delivered him. 1 Peter 3 says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears open to their prayer. Those who wait on the Lord will never be put to shame. So in light of his promises, let's cast our cares to the Lord. Paul says in Philippians 4, he just says, let your requests be made known to God. And what happens? What will happen? What's the promise? The peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's a privilege to better come before the throne of God, burdened by whatever we're waiting for, confident that we will receive grace, not a reprimand for our lack of faith. So tell him you're discouraged by your job. Tell him that you're lonely and you desire good friends or a spouse. Tell him you're weary from parenting your children and you're at the end of your strength. Tell him that you're battling condemnation and you're having a hard time believing that his grace is sufficient. Tell him that you long to see your relative know the Lord. Pray honestly and with humility. And David's shown us we can do this without complaining. Complaining is is accusing God of injustice. That's That's not what's happening here. It's not what David's doing. He's casting his cares to God. He's humbly casting his cares to God, who he believes is working all things for his good. There's a number of older Christians that I deeply respect that will walk as they pray. And I've I've found this particularly helpful when applying this. Taking a walk down my street or in the park and just praying out loud, Lord, this is where I'm at. This is what I'm struggling with. This is hard. (laughs) This is difficult. Help. I need your grace. Coming to the Lord in in honest prayer is an act of faith. And the Lord honors it. But it's important to note that this psalm doesn't end with joyful exaltation like so many psalms do. We don't get to read details about how David was delivered. But notice verse 21. Notice that David, he doesn't lose sight of the importance of following the ways of God in his waiting. He says, may integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Despite his 
affliction, David still desires to walk the paths of God and be led by the truth of God. Though he's in the midst of painful waiting, he still wants to follow God. And I'm, I'm thankful it ends without resolution. God in his kindness ordained it to be so good. David shows us how to continue to wait as we live on this side of heaven, where there will be questions not answered and situations not resolved. But the Lord knows what we need, and he's given us Psalm 25 as counsel. David concludes the psalm by praying, verse 22, Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. And notice his his focus shifts from personal trial to the welfare of God's people. God is big enough and he's mighty enough to handle not only our personal cares, but the cares of his church. So like David, let's care about the people of God. Let's care about his church. Let's pray for one another. Let's counsel one another with these psalms. All the while, awaiting Christ's return, when our faith will become sight. Until that day, we we wait on the Lord alone. We walk in his ways. We're students of his promises. We can pour our hearts out to him. Let's continue to wait in eager expectation that God will fulfill his promises to us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the hope that we have because of Christ. Lord, we do wait. We wait for things in this life. Ultimately, we wait for our Savior's return when we see him with our eyes. That's what we anticipate. But until that day, you've equipped us with your word. And so, Lord, I pray that your word would come alive to us, Lord, as we seek your truth. as we seek to know you, as we seek to live in holiness before you, help us, Lord. We need your spirit. We need your help as we seek to wait well. Thank you that you will answer our prayers. You love to instruct sinners in the way. We give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.